people who join a five person company, they generally are not going to walk in and go, I need a laptop and I need a t-shirt and I need totally. lots of proper health care. And you that's, get, not you know, I mean, that's not why they're joining. That's not why they're joining. I don't, I don't know, man. I don't. In my experience, having started these three things, nobody's expectations are that you you're clean there. Even for me is it like, they get it. Then you just have to be honest. Like, hey guys, we're, just, we're switching between this and this. Can you just buy your own insurance? I'll yeah. give you money. Uh, I'll say, if you're I'll a girl, say not if you're a girl boss, you can't get away with it. If you're the girl boss, good luck. Oh, wow. Drop, dropping that in the last minute. What's up, everyone? I'm Alex Lieberman. And I'm Sophia Amoruso. Yo, this is Jesse Puji. And this is The Crazy Ones. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of The Crazy Ones, the greatest startup show on planet Earth. As always, joined by my co-host, Jesse Puji, aka Baby Buffett, and Sophia Amoruso, the dean. I think uh, an audience member called me the mailman the other day, so I'm going to be the mailman until you guys give me a better name. Can I be um, the sandwich artist? The si- I, I mean, it's kind of long, but why? Or do you make good sandwiches? Was my Subway was my first job. I don't know. Oh, I, I, I kind of <laughs> like that. Really detailed. Okay, so the we'll call you artist. Modern Murdoch. How about that? If I'm Baby Buffett, you're Modern Murdoch. I like that. Sure. Okay, I'll be I'll be the Modern Murdoch. Um, anyway. For those of you who have watched The Crazy Ones before, welcome back to the show. For those of you who somehow stumbled here, whether it's through YouTube's amazing algorithm or a friend telling you that you have to watch or listen to this, welcome. We're excited for you to be a part of the community. And uh, quick housekeeping before we hop into the show, shoot us an email at thecrazyones at morningbrew.com. Introduce yourself. Give us feedback on the show. Share ideas for how you want this to get better for you, the listener. We want this to be a community of just amazing entrepreneurs, so make sure to do that when you're done watching and listening. Rundown for today, pretty simple. First, we're going to be talking about an amazing company called Red Ventures. It's a multi-billion dollar media conglomerate that you've basically never heard of that uh, our co-host, Jesse Puji is intimately familiar with. Then we're going to talk about fundraising, how we've done it, the lessons we learned, how to do it well, how not to do it. And we're going to finish up with another Startup AMA where one of you, a viewer and listener, sent in a selfie video uh, asking a question about running a business, and we're going to answer that question. So let's hop into this thing. Jesse, I'm going to turn the mic to you. Tell just what's the Red Ventures story? How did you even find out about Red Ventures? Yeah, it's a crazy story. Um, You know, we found out about it uh, in 2011. Uh, One of my co-founders, Chris, one of his pods in investment banking was a guy, he was an associate at General Atlantic, which is a big private equity firm. And he introduced us to them because General Atlantic had just invested in them. And that was their first outside money. And, and we got, got a chance to meet with Rick and Dan, who are the founders, and then kind of had a lifelong friendship since then. And then they actually bought a big stake in Ampush in 2015, worked super closely with them. Uh, and yeah, so they've become like partners to us. But yeah, let me tell the story. It's a, it's, I love telling it because it's just such a crazy story. It's one of a bootstrap giant I actually haven't written about. But you know, that I'll start should. with Rick. I will. Yeah, Rick. You know, Rick was born in Puerto Rico. Um, you know, he his his dad was a Lebanese immigrant, which I didn't even know people immigrated there. But was a very successful businessman, but didn't pay his taxes and kind of I think got all his money taken away or locked up or something bad happened, and that really left Rick with a with a lesson. And you know, he 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 tried to become a professional basketball player, didn't work out, and he went from Puerto Rico at the age of seventeen and a half, only speaking Spanish, to Boston College. And he decided to major in accounting. And, and he, the way he says it is because it's like, I didn't have to talk to anyone. I could do numbers. Numbers don't speak <laughs> a language. 
Um, he, he spent some time in companies. He went to Harvard Business School. Uh, he worked at GE's famous program. I know GE kind of had a big imprint on him, and his CFO was his boss at GE, his CFO at, at Red Ventures later. Uh, but really, the story gets interesting. You know, in the late 90s, there was this company called Sendent. You guys may know it. It started Orbitz. Never heard of it. No. It, it was one of the biggest conglomerates of the inter the first internet age. So tons of direct marketing stuff with travel. They had like those coupon books, the entertainment books, a bunch of different businesses. And he met Dan Feldstein, his co-founder there. And they started Red Ventures in March of 2000. And if those who know, in April of 2000, the internet imploded and the stock, you know, stock market, NASDAQ was down. 60%. And they had, you know, five years after five years of toiling away at this business, in their words, they had built a shitty digital marketing agency. And it was project based, they could barely get any business with it. And the story they tell is, Rick went to Dan and said, give me a dollar. And Dan gave him a dollar. And Rick said, Okay, you can have my half of the business. Like, I'm out. This sucks. Wow. And By so the they way, actually where did where where did digital marketing happen at the time, right? Because this is before all yeah, like, the major that's a great platforms. It was like, like, where did you do it? That's such a good question. Yeah, it was it was like all project based, like email work or did, you know, they design emails and send emails or they would do like, let me make your website a little bit better. And it was just it was like total early day stuff. It was all project based work. And, and I think the business didn't go anywhere. Um, so they it's actually fun, like it's funny. I, I wonder um, if MailChimp was started around the same time, because I know like the story of MailChimp is they started as an agency and they started providing like email as a service to their clients. And then that they were like, this is actually a really interesting product. So it's interesting to th think about how actually agencies can be just great businesses for finding other products within the totally. work you're doing for clients. I mean, what I, yeah, something yeah. I read that was so interesting. He bought a million phone numbers and this was just, yeah, like let before me, Oh my God, I'll get why to don't that. you tell that story? I love that so much. Yeah, so 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 it's 2005. They just divested this business. They sold it to someone else for nothing. And they said, what do we do now? And right around that time, there was this thing that had been launched called the Google paid search engine, right? There, I mean, Google is maybe a few years old, but the paid ads didn't had not had just started. And one of their big relationships was with DirecTV, the satellite provider. And they had this super creative idea. They went and said, you know, you guys don't know how to do any of this stuff. Uh, you know, DirecTV at that time was looking for dealers, right? So people who would sit inside of a mall and sell you a subscription and they get pay them a bounty every time they bought that subscription. So Rick and Dan smartly went to, to DirecTV and said, we want to be a dealer. We want to be a reseller of DirecTV. And DirecTV's like, okay, cool. What's your region? What area? They go, this, this region is going to be called the internet. And DirecTV <laughs> didn't really know what the internet was. So they're like, okay, sure. You guys want to sell on the internet? Go for it. So what they set up was instead of an agency, they became actually a like they had a brand called Direct Star TV. They had tons of websites for their driving SEO, tons of paid search. They could bid on the brand term early on. And as Sophia started saying, they got amazing at connecting marketing and sales. Like one of the examples they give is they had a million eight hundred numbers. So you would call in. This was before any of this existed. This is like late 2000s. They they would figure out, oh, you like HBO, you like the NFL. Okay, you're going to call in on an 800 number connected to your cookie, and they're going to know your browsing behavior, and it's going to change the script that they showed you. So they built all this crazy connective tissue, and one of the things they always say is, if I can get 3 to 5% better at 10 different things, I'm 50% better all of a sudden. And they started selling DirecTV. So every time they would sell a DirecTV subscription, they'd get paid, whatever, 500 bucks. And they literally became like 20% of DirecTV's volume and built a like $100 million profit business just on selling direct TV on the internet. Like that and was their sole client. That was their like 80% of their business through for, for the first five years. 
Then they did the same thing with ADT security. They did the same thing with any of these like long home purchases. And it became a, you know, a multi hundred million dollar business. Hadn't raised a dime of money around that time. Rick was actually in the Sully flight. So the famous flight that landed in the Hudson. And apparently like I've, I've met his executives who knew him before and after and they go, he, it really changed him. I mean, he really, really started to take the second chance at life. At that point, he started to kind of go, I'm going to do Red Ventures for the rest of my life. Like up until then, he wanted to flip it as soon as he could. And he said, nope, I'm going to just wake up every day and make this thing amazing because because life is not promised to me. So one, um, one of the best uh, TED Talks I've ever watched. It's yeah, uh, like sure, one, five minutes. million views. Yeah, five minutes, the three lessons he learned from that flight. Yeah, and they were all about kind of urgency, making the most of the moment, your family. Uh, and he lives them very much. Like I've gotten to know him really well and he's home at six o'clock, he'll jump off something because his kids need, you know, his kids need something like it's he's uh, he's done really well. So anyway, they, they started to expand this business into uh, Verizon Wireless, American Express credit cards, you name it. If it was a high lifetime value purchase, they built a huge business line around it. And it became a bunch of like independent businesses. They would develop talent into it as all homegrown talent, all of their leadership team, like they hired out of college, trained how to, how to do these things. And the, you know, General Atlantic found them. And in classic Rick fashion, he's like, you know, the story I heard from my friend was, he's like, you have 10 days, come here, here's my terms, you either invest or not. And they came in and generally, like, oh, please, we're going to invest. So they bought $150 million stake, all kind of secondary. So that was a big win. And they started helping them expand into different horizons. And that business itself became hundreds of millions in profit. But, you know, after 10 years of running it, like Rick could see that hey, there, you know, I need to grow in different ways. And there may be some threats, like people are getting smarter about digital. They don't necessarily want to outsource their entire sales and marketing. That was always the question around their business. And so he started making a lot of bets. One of the bets was he invested in Ampush and we took their same business model and applied it to direct to consumer companies. So we started taking on, we went from just doing paid social to doing everything and, and charging a more aligned compensation model, not a percentage of spend, but a per, you know, a per customer kind of fee. And that was very, really changed our business a lot. At the same time he invested in us, they bought a couple publishers. So they were like, oh, let's buy reviews.com. And they applied the same skills that they had at SEO, paid traffic, on-site optimization. And I think most importantly, their, their unique culture of just move fast, decisive, get stuff done. Um, and they bought, I think, a, a, a publishing asset and they tripled the EBITDA in eight months. Was that when they built, uh, bought Bankrate, or was this? Well, so no, this, so that they like they kept eating. You know, like uh, it, Rick is one of the best risk reward guys out there. So he's like, oh, let me buy like a four million dollar. I'm gonna invest in Ampush. Yeah. I'm gonna buy a four million dollar EBITDA. But like he did five things, right? Yeah, he Amp he like sizes bets well. Sizes bets well. Then they crushed it. He was like, let me buy like a fifteen million dollar one. Same thing happened. Then eventually he's like, fuck it, I'm gonna buy a publicly traded company called Bankrate, which was. Um, you know, owns the points guy, owns creditcards.com, you name it. And, you know, it, unofficially the same results. They just, they multiple multiples of whatever profit those businesses were generating. They generated via amazing culture and, and being really thoughtful and quantitative about all the pieces. And then, and then they just went crazy with it. They, they bought healthline.com, which is the biggest healthcare business. They bought CNET, they bought lonely planet. And now, you know, by estimates are anywhere from 10 to 20 billion, but the company, uh, you know, they raise money from Silver Lake, but, but again, just in terms of secondary, like they've never, as far as I know, they've never raised equity capital onto their balance sheet. So there's yeah. all been driven by their profits and their ability. 
and now it's it's you know I I admire Rick a ton partly because I think his work life balance his relationships with his wife and his family are just incredible like he really has done that piece of it uh, he credits a lot of that to plane crash funny enough right he's just like I, I have perspective um, but the other thing is their culture is just unbelievable they let our leadership team come across the board we had 15 of our top leaders come and screen kind of their equivalent leaders and then we came together and we said what did we learn what do we see and the consistency of their culture and it was in that new york times article it's like warm and generous and friendly and like ruthless quantitative analytical threat marketing it's like a total combination of those two things um but it's an absolutely incredible story uh and, and just a business well, it sounds that sounds like the embodiment so of rick like the way you describe the culture 100%. seems like this embodiment of like he seems like a very warm empathic person but on the other side of it he's like very quant focused like he's to the T. I think Jeff Weiner says compassionate about people, ruthless about business, and he is that. And I and I think in a way that you kind of know where he stands and you know why, and so that it never really offends you know never like they bought a big stake in us. They were going to buy the rest. They ended up not doing it for a variety of reasons, but it never bothered me because I sort of understood the rules I was playing by, and uh, and he never stopped supporting me. He never you know at one point he called me. I think maybe eight, nine months into the investment, he's like, you know, you never call me, Jesse, like you're busy. I'm like, dude, I'm like 2% of your business. And he's like, yeah, I don't care about that either, but you're my friend and I want to support you and I want to like be there for you. That's why I did this. And I was like, oh shit. Like that's- So for, for entrepreneurs listening to this, what are like the biggest lessons that you've actually taken from your experience with Rick as a friend and a mentor? And like you really try to put it into practice in your own businesses that you run? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, God, there's so many. I, I think I've, I've written about it before. I mean, I think I'll, I'll do a mix of, of a few different types. I think one is like, you know, Rick does not know the revenue of Red Ventures. He could tell you the profit down to five decimal places. Um, and he had the story he told wild. me where he met Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon was like, oh, what's the revenue of your business? He's like, you know what? I'm not going to lie. I have no idea. But here's my, here's my, <laughs> and Jamie's like, you must be an amazing entrepreneur. And I think wow. like, you know, he says profit's the only thing you could take to the bank. Like I'm definitely in that school of thought that you gotta make money in your business. You gotta be profitable. Doesn't mean you can't grow, but but getting addicted to burning cash is a very dangerous thing. And and I think that's one he just he blazoned into our head. Um, I remember one time we were having a board meeting with him, and I was like, our revenue's growing, and he's like, look at the profit. He's like, but you're but you're you're hiring a lot of people, and, and I was like, yeah, but revenue's growing, and he just like put his hand. And he's like, Jesse, have I taught you nothing? <laughs> like I don't care about revenue. I only care about profit. Uh, so that, I think that's a great lesson to take home. Uh, I think the this is the threefer. I like to tell everybody this. You know, oftentimes when you're debating with your with your business partners or your executive team, it's like, okay, we can do initiatives that grow us, or we can do initiatives that make us more profitable. And we're like, oh, there's a trade off. There's all these issues. What about all the ones that can grow you and make you profitable at the same time? And and in fact, he's like, grow you, make you profitable, and teach you about another business line. So. His view is because it's so you have such limited time anyway, you should always pick initiatives that give you the three fur. Like it has to be, it's a really hardcore way to prioritize, but it's essentially to say, I have to find three ways I can win in this situation. Same thing for M&A deals. He has to have multiple ways or he just won't do it. And he'll just say no. And he's incredibly disciplined about everything they spend time on, every business they buy. I have to see and be able to articulate the three fur. Uh, so I love that one. That's another really good one. I'd be so uh, fascinated in how he spends his time on a daily basis now. Yeah, he's, I, I mean, I could tell you he's, he has, he's like a doctor. He spends 15 minutes. He has 15-minute meetings. 
He scheduled probably 80% of his day and they're all just meeting his business leaders. How are things going? What needs to get done? Let's, let's talk about this. And it's, and he can, one of the things about their culture that's to hallmark is he could, you could show him a Facebook campaign and he could go to the bone and say, what's the click through rate conversion? Why is that happening? All the way back up to like financing a multi-billion dollar transaction or whatever. So the, and the whole culture operates that way. So everyone has that ability to go up to down in terms of the detail level. Not that they do, but they can if they need to, uh, which That's is probably incredible. a good third lesson, you know, and uh, the third lesson actually I'll, I'll talk about, I think is, a, is just very uh, not normal. I sat down with him in a meeting once and I was like, we're going to target a 25% EBITDA margin next year. And he looks at me and he goes, cool. I'm like, why? I'm like, I don't know. It's a good margin. What are you talking about? He goes, well, why not 28? Why not? 15 why not 40 and i was like well i don't know we're just picking this number this is, and, and, he, and he, I was like, he's like well, how are you teaching your leaders about that i'm like well i gave them targets also and he goes but what if they could do 30 and they're going to do down to 25 because you've just managed it that way and i was like oh that's crazy and he was like look lots of people run their businesses by giving top-down targets and then people managing to those targets we don't do that we give people targets based on the input metrics we talk a lot about what's click-through rate going to be What's conversion, what's headcount, what's number of phone calls a sales team is going to make? Because in his experience, margins can always be better and higher by focusing on those metrics and not giving someone the ability to manage to a, a, a top-down target. And so that like blew my mind when he said it. And then I started trying it and realized, oh my God, it really is. It, it's a totally different way of running a business and managing people that like unlocks all kinds of opportunities you wouldn't otherwise find when you just kind of say, well, here's the package, go hit this package. Um, so that's another thing to play with, which is manage your input metrics and you may see your margins and everything else beat, beat whatever goals you could ever imagine um, versus giving you know margin targets and then trying to manage to those. I also think something that's really interesting and is that, you know, he bought these companies like, you know, HealthNet, HealthNet, Healthline, Healthline um, the points guy, um, these businesses where you know, the commission that they're getting on these sales is based on this really big lifetime value of the customer. So the commission for something like a credit card, uh, you know, affiliate might be something like 300 to $900, where with something like Wirecutter, it's just like, you know, it's, I don't know what, a few bucks. It's 15, very little. 20, yeah. Really, really smart. Just kind of looking at a, you know, a product that already exists or a way of, mar you know, making money that already exists and figuring out how to make that you know, the margin of that and the revenue of that doing the same amount of work so much greater. Um, I also saw that he said something that everything is written in pencil. And for someone that is that disciplined, being able to instill that culture of curiosity and, and innovation in an organization that has been pretty formulaic with its business model is is really interesting and I think gives people permission to run and not feel like this is you know this is this is the formula even though it has been the formula um, so yeah. he's you know there there are kind of oblique ways that he's building his business and think both culturally and strategically uh, from like his product and financial perspective that is really inspiring and also you know i think a takeaway here is just like one if you bootstrap your business and you're building the facebook ads you know everything you can hold people accountable to that if you raise a bunch of money and you hire people who know how to do that it's really hard to hold them accountable so in the beginning being in the weeds and being that kind of founder can be a really big strength and then also what a lot of people don't think about 
you think about bootstrapping, but they don't realize that it's not bootstrapping isn't always about taking money out of the business just to pay yourself, but that just like a venture back business, your goal can be to build enterprise value and take secondary out of it, which a lot of founders sure. are like, well, I don't want investors. It's like, <clears throat> well, you know, when I took 50 million from index ventures and the comp my company was profitable and didn't really need it. That was a really big deal. And that's, I owned 80% of that and it's rare, but it's possible. And it's another, yeah. and you call the shots too. I mean, he, again, he gave them 10 days. He gave him 10 totally. days. He said, you can invest or not. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't matter to me, but, and that really flips the whole relationship in a unique way. Yeah. Um, and, and I think right. the other big thing, just as a story, like there's that Steve jobs, you know, you can't connect, you connect that's looking backwards. They would have these big business lines, by the way, just to be clear, they would have 30 to 50 marketing people and 200 salespeople. They actually did all the sales themselves and they got really good at, they'd bring on American express as a client and they'd reassign 20, 30 people from the marketing team and a hundred people from the sales team that were some of their best. And they just got amazing at this whole, everything is written in pencil, moving people around massively, massive orgs. Well, guess what? When you start buying huge businesses, if you're really good at moving people around in new orgs, that, that's been part of their secret sauce. If they buy a business, they literally will put 100 new people on the business and those people will start to like re reinstall their playbook, which then leads to massive gains. So there's so many little pieces to it that add up to like an inc crazy and insane sort of story. The final thing I'll say is I think as you were talking about, Sophia, this idea of their focus on high LTV products, whether it's like credit cards or, you know, direct TV packages, it makes me think about something that frames a lot of my decision making in life, which is this concept of talent arbitrage. When I think about why I've had success as an entrepreneur, I think I can attribute 80% of it, maybe not 80, maybe I'm like being too much of a jerk to myself, a lot of it to leaving finance and going into media, because I think there quite literally was an arbitrage on the talent and skill of people in financial services versus in the media industry on average. There are still a lot of smart people in media, but I would say the density of smart, skilled, ambitious people was way higher in financial services. And I would say it's actually kind of the same thing when I think about using the example of affiliate businesses. There's an arbitrage of not to say you don't have to be skilled at selling direct TV packages or selling credit cards, but you just have so much more buffer to work with uh, of selling a credit card that all of a sudden you get a kickback of $700 or selling a direct TV package that you get a kickback of $300 versus selling a sweatshirt that you get a kickback of $20. You have so much more margin to play with. So you can be more mediocre at your job. Not that you want to be, but you're afforded that opportunity. Yeah, I also think I just speaking about curiosity inside the business, what they're playing to are the curiosities of their of their readers. And so someone's looking, you know, to save money, to finance their business, to get their credit card, right, to get points, um, to think about their health, to Google every last ailment that could possibly, you know, be affecting them. And these are, I mean, they're fears. It's playing into fears in some ways, but it's also play and it's playing into um, people's, you know, egos, but also their livelihoods. Um, and, totally. and also they're not beholden to the, you know, advertising industry, the algorithms where anybody can go into Apple news and see all of the news and the news is very much commoditized now where something that's specialized and something that's built on SEO, which is free is a higher margin, much more specialized product that 
gives them kind of like a direct line to selling products in a way that a news organization may not have the the, the same opportunity to. Totally. Yeah, and then okay. the best we, we need to we need to push forward. Okay. I'm putting the mute button on you. All right. I wish I was, I wish it was like pardon the interruption where you could actually mute people. Um, okay. You were talking about a minute ago, Sophia, how you had raised the 50 million from index. And I want to go deeper into this topic of fundraising. So let's start with you. Talk about just your fundraising experience, like when you've raised money for your businesses mm-hmm. and some of the biggest lessons that you learned in the process of fundraising. Yeah. I mean, it was easy the first time. I didn't mean to. They sought me out, right? I had built this built this really successful business with Nasty Gal, bootstrapped it to you know twelve million dollars from one to six and a half to twelve, and it was exploding. And e-commerce was still pretty nascent. There weren't a lot of you know fashion e-com businesses out there, so it was unique in its space. Um, and they came in and they plowed fifty million dollars into the business. I, as a bootstrapped entrepreneur who, you know, wasn't a management consultant, who didn't go to business school, you know, who I think a lot of founders who are listening relate to in that they're an accidental entrepreneur, they don't think, they don't have the pedigree, maybe they think they can't do it. There is a learning curve. There are advantages for, you know, for starting a business from the outside and not looking at it in the same kind of formulaic way that you may be taught, that someone may be taught in business school, but at the same time, without the exposure to that, either inside of an organization as an employee or an executive, as a consultant or through business school, your learning curve is much higher. And the whole serendipitous you know, story of that has been very cute, but once you plow $50 million into a business, understanding what to do with it is an entirely different game turning one dollar into three into six with a bootstrap business is pretty simple and if in you know in a perfect world you don't know your top line revenue because you're doing something as simple as making more money than you're spending which should be the most essential metric of your business um i think you have to understand the objectives of the investors um understand that their goals are not often aligned with yours. They may say, we support you as a founder. We believe in you. We want you to do, you know, what you want. We're going to continue supporting you along the way, even when things get bumpy. But their attention can shift when things do get bumpy. And that's what were the objective of your investors? I mean, the objective of all investors, just like the objective of any business is to serve their customers or their bosses and venture capitalists are beholden to their lps or the bigger fish that invest in them as one asset that is among a variety of diversified assets it's their job to on paper take your company and say nasty gal is worth 350 million today when we invested in it and push you, push you, push you to maybe even be an overvalued business because their investors don't know that. What they're showing those investors, even though you haven't sold the company and that is you know, kind of funny money, it's on paper, is that their investment has been successful and they can show them that they've marked up their investment and that their return looks amazing. And so that's their job, that's their ultimate job. And if that's not what's happening, they move on. It's not their money. They're, they're making a lot of bets. Even $50 million is something that out of a growth fund is not much to lose. And their attention will shift. I think it's a, you know, it's a great thing as long as your eyes are wide open 
and your understanding, like everything is alignment. You know, the three of us, we all have reasons to do this show. It helps us all in different ways. There's, and so as long as we all feel aligned to it and whatever the objectives of it are, we're going to keep doing it. And if we don't, for some reason, we will change our perspective on that. And that's true for every single business, every employee of yours, they're there because they're getting something that's beneficial, but not in a bad way, but benefiting them, money, learnings, et cetera. And, you know, it, I have a funny story about this and I want to share just as an example of, of how things change a little bit. So we raise money for Kahani. Everybody knows that. And one of the final terms of the negotiation was there was this term that if I died, that my equity would, I would stop vesting. And my family would get whatever was vested, but the rest they would company would own, right? Bad incentive. And I was like, and I, I'd never seen that before because I've never raised seed money, right? And seed money is very different. They're betting on an idea that really hinges on my ability to deliver it. Let's be very clear. And, and everything I had raised had been more mature businesses. And uh, you know, looking at growth assistant as another example, I own. I, it's a little further along. But like, if I die, my family owns that. That that's like our equity. No one's gonna touch it because it's me and a partner. You, did, that's you didn't raise. Did you raise anything for growth assistant? No. Okay. Growth assistant's totally bootstrapped. I die. You know, my family owns that, and they'll this sell is it. This getting fast. Well, yeah. but but it, how many times you're talking know. about you dying? <clears throat> but I was like, wait, why, guys? Like, I started this thing. Why would you? Why would the company? And they said, look, Jesse, this is pretty standard in this type of deal. And the reason is you die and you're, you own the whole company and we need to find someone to run it and grow it because we've put money into it. We've put investor money into it. And it occurred to me in that moment that the second you raise institutional or professional money, which I define as sort of money raised from people who have raised from other people, right? Like, like, like Sophia said, it's their business, not a person's individual capital. Your business becomes a financial product. That doesn't mean you have to treat it that way, by the way, but you just have to understand that it has become a financial product for somebody else. And that that financial product has to have like a return. Like that's, that's part of the point. So it makes, I, we ended, I ended up giving on it, right? Because I understood where they, where they were coming from and hopefully I won't die. But I think it was just a really stark contrast to someone who's bootstrapped businesses his whole life. For the first time, I was like, oh yeah, this is not like, this is a financial, financial product for these guys. They have to make sure that, that the cap table stays, uh, stays clean in the case where I die. <laughs> I feel right. like I feel like you had have to have been like the first person in months that asked these investors about the death clause. Like I feel like I didn't ask. I redlined were... it out. I said, "What are you talking about? I die. This is all my family's equity. Screw you." Like that, that was my starting position. I didn't say screw no. you. They're very like it was a very. But but I but I, I redlined it out. I said, "No no, this is zero. I'm not giving you. This is mine." And then they came back and they said, "No, Jesse, this is a really. There was a sticking clause. It was a thing that we like got down to the wire on. Um, I horse traded other stuff for it, but ultimately it was." It was uh, it was important to them, and I get it. I get why it was important to them, but it is different. Just to be clear, what kind of businesses do you guys think should raise money versus shouldn't raise money? I mean, what a great know, question. Yeah, Jesse. Anybody can use right Facebook or the you know an ad agency doesn't necessarily need to raise money. A commerce business, depending on the amount of R and D that they have to do to create their product, may need to raise money. If you're going to trade shows and buying shit and starting small, probably don't need to raise money. If you're building software, may need to raise money. You know, engineers are yeah. expensive. So I guess curious on your thoughts of what kinds of businesses should be raising money and what kinds of businesses shouldn't. I have an answer, I mean, but Alex, you go first. My answer is if you have an exceptional reason that you need to buy time and the payment for that time 
aligns with the incentives of the person that is um, putting capital into your business. Because there are examples of businesses where you may want to buy time, as in be able to accelerate the business in a year that you could have done with your own capital in five years, but you can only grow your business 10% a year. And you know the average institutional investor is looking for you to double for three years straight once you had a million dollars of revenue and then keep growing fast. And that may not make sense. Uh, and then there are a lot of businesses where you don't need to buy time. And when I talk about buying time, I think one of the biggest reasons there's, there is for a business to buy time is if you are in a winner-takes-all market. And so a, a winner-takes-all market is, I would say, generally markets that are defined by network effects. Um, so businesses like Uber or Airbnb, where every additional customer that you bring on, it makes the product best, better for previous customers. And because network effects are so strong, generally there will only be one or two players that win in that market. That's where it makes sense to me. And I would say the other place that it makes sense is if not just buying time, if you need to buy the ability to run your business, meaning the cost of capital upfront is simply that you something you can't do on your own, and it is impossible to prove product market fit without this initial cost of capital. Just to provide a stark contrast to that, for Morning Brew, I would say you know we we operated very intuitively in the early days because we didn't know what was you know status quo or the right thing to do in entrepreneurship. But for Austin and I. We had always heard kind of these horror stories of raising VC money, uh, and we'd especially heard horror stories with media businesses because, again, we grew up in media at a time where kind of like the the golden children of media were Mashable, Mike, BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, uh, uh, Vice, uh, like uh, Group 9 Media, and basically every business that I just named has gotten whacked as a function of their cap table and how they've grown. And so we didn't need to buy time. We were college students that, that didn't even know we needed a business or were running a business. And we didn't need to buy uh, get capital to prove that there was product market fit because the cost of our business for the first few years was $100 um, a <laughs> month on MailChimp. And yeah. so I feel very grateful that our intuition was right. And we weren't necessarily so thoughtful about it. But yeah, not raising VC money and raising 750 k from family and friends, I think was one of the best decisions we made in the business. Yeah. I'll give a quick, my quick kind of framework when people ask me the question. I'd say there's two questions. There's a question personally, which is the most important one, I think. And then there's a question about the business. And the sub questions personally are, what do you want your life to be like in five or 10 years? Do you want to be the king and own it and run it and make the calls? Or do you want to kind of have something bigger and potentially bigger and more meaningful, but like have a board and have this kind of structure where you're essentially working for the company, you're an employee of the company. I think that there's like a big difference there personally. I think also personally is like, how much money do you need and how much do you have and how much can you stay without money? Like, you know, and I think in either case, let's say you don't have very much money well, that's either a reason to start a very cash flow oriented business or a reason to raise money. Um, if you can go without it for a while, like you did, Alex, with your, your parents' help and I did early on, my parents, like, then like, yeah, you can get away with bootstrapping something that might also be a fast trajectory. But anyway, the first question is personal, very personal. The second question is business. And I think I agree with Alex covered off on the business questions. Like, is it linear growth or exponential growth? Is it network effects, not network effects, but depending on the nature of that business and what you know, the easy thing, by the way, my easy hack for this is go find a bunch of similar businesses to yours and that are five, 10 years out and look at their market caps. 
there's not that many big agencies that haven't ultimately done a lot of M&A using their profits, right? There's not like, whereas there's lots of software businesses that have huge market caps. Like you can just see where things go by looking ahead at similar businesses to kind of glean what type of business you might be starting. I want to I want to go around the horn before we move on to the last topic with one question and one recommendation from everyone. Let's assume an entrepreneur is uh, watching or listening to this and they know they're going to fundraise. So they've already listened to kind of uh, our warnings as well as our framework for when it makes sense to raise capital. They've decided to raise capital and they're wondering, how can I stack the deck in my favor? How can I effectively raise capital, especially right now in a an inflationary potentially recessionary, high unemployment uh, environment at the moment. What is one recommendation you have to successfully raise um, around a capital? Sophia, we'll start with you. I would say optimize for, don't optimize for ownership, optimize for evaluation that you feel like you're able to fulfill on and don't end up in an overpriced uh overpriced like purgatory where you're unable to raise because you're you know you've had the glory of having a 10x valuation for a business that has a million dollars in arr love it so don't be greedy and be realistic uh about your value yeah. uh jesse prepare and plan to take 100 phone calls 100 meetings and you'll be successful that's it just yep. talk to a lot of people and, and build a big pipeline i mean that that's that's the best advice I can give anyone. Sophia, yeah. no, I asked for one. Fine, you could do one more. Show your deck to the investors that you care about or want to work with the least and bounce it off of them before you take it to the ones that you really, really want. I love that. Um, my recommendation will be, it's actually a combination of what Jesse and Sophia just said. Get in a ton of reps of telling your story to people who don't matter so that you can be a great storyteller to the people who do matter. That is fundraising in a nutshell. I'm sure we're going to talk about it a lot more in future episodes, but let's move on to uh, Startup AMA. So we have a Crazy Ones uh, listener who sent in a selfie video. They're an early stage entrepreneur. We're going to listen to it and then uh, let's opine. Hey, Alex, how does a startup get attractive benefit packages at competitive rates before they hit a large group headcount. Okay, Jesse, you said um, off cam that you've dealt with this recently. So how do you think about benefits in the early stages of a business? Yeah, I mean, a couple of interesting things, you know, there's certain state laws that are different for different places. So one cool thing about California is they have to, they force you or whatever they provide for, you get the same benefits as any small business of a certain size. And that's actually a requirement for the insurers. So if you're starting in California, that's a benefit. In Missouri, that's not the case. I don't know what the case is in New York. When we first started, we just did normal insurance as a small business because we were starting in California and that worked. This time around, we've, you know, and, and we looked at PEOs and what PEOs are, <clears throat> I don't even know what it stands for, but they essentially take your employees onto them as, as if they're their employees. The famous one is Trinet. It's like a big publicly traded company. And they, by aggregating a bunch of small businesses, they basically can negotiate and get as good of benefits as a big company. Now, the process at Trinet used to be a total disaster. They had to like, they were on their payroll. They legally weren't your employees. They sent the paycheck and they were employees. Of it was like this really messy thing. So I never did it before. But now these newer companies like Gusto and, and Rippling have made it basically seamless and made like totally like a white labeled. Like employees don't even know any different. And they offer amazing benefits. So we did a whole analysis and ultimately chose to go with the Rippling PEO. 
And, and just just for context, um, you know, there's all these options. Like you said, there's Rippling. We used uh, JustWorks in the early days before that. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the true OG days where there was just a few of us, we uh, used uh, Oscar. How much does like health insurance in the early days cost? Like how are you charged by Rippling as a business? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, these guys have like a normal payroll service, like an ADP, where it's some per head count, say 20, 30 bucks. They also make money on the float. They're amazing businesses, by the way, separate topic. Um, But what you normally just pay out, you know, for a family of, I think before what we were doing for a family of three or four, we'd pay 1500 bucks a month. For an individual who's younger, you maybe pay three to 500 a month. When you join the PEO, you pay Rippling more money, but they get you a way better plan for less money. So actually, we did all the math. And it nets out way better to do the PEO, assuming it's not disruptive to the business. Now, Trinet, from our experience, and you know, it was just so disruptive to the business and the operations that it wasn't worth it. But it seems like Rippling has solved that problem. Uh, well, I'll let you know in a few months, but that's what it seems like. Sophia, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think what we're not talking about are the kind of benefits that you can give people that aren't necessarily through a payroll system or through something like JustWorks, which is what I use with my team of two uh, at business class, but things like unlimited PTO. People don't, they don't take advantage of it, right? Like they'll leave for a couple weeks a year, but it sounds really great. Um, Things like you know, flexible work schedules, being able to work from home. There are these softer benefits that you can give people that really cost the company no money. And if you approach, you know, if you treat your employees like adults, they're going to show up, they're going to do your, their job. It's going to be more about their contribution than it is about their butt being in a seat, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And that really gives people a sense of, kind of respect from a company in a way that typically isn't. We've talked about companies literally measuring like the time it takes for someone on their team to send an email. And I think that is like the complete opposite of how companies should be thinking about their businesses, unless it's like a fulfillment center or something just super simple like that. How, how fast does it take to, to pack, <laughs> to pack something, but giving people room to run. Um, yep. Yeah, culture. Like these are things that can feel like benefits to people where they're, you know, they're not they're not going to leave your company because of health insurance only, uh, you know, the company only paying for half of health insurance. They're going to leave your company because your culture sucks or because they're not learning or because somebody's micromanaging them. Like, yes, it's a carrot, but it's not what keeps people around. I uh, I think we're going to have a great debate on some episode about if uh, unlimited PTO is actually valuable because I think it's an absolute farce and mm-hmm. I don't oh. think uh, I I don't think people uh, actually use it because I feel the pre- they think they feel the pressure not to use it. You could argue that if your culture was better, people would use it. I still don't buy it. It is a debate for another time, uh, but I'm not going to be able to provide that much value to this conversation because uh, I'm. Um, you know, you're living the executive of, chairman life, you know, you're like, benefits. <laughs> honest, uh, on, uh, to be honest with you, I, w- I would give anything to be back in the seats that you guys are in right now. But all I'll say is it's so funny to think back to the early days of the brew of things we didn't give to people. And if we didn't give those things today, we would get shit on like i don't think we originally gave health care or health insurance to our few like a few of our early employees uh our first provider was oscar 
and Oscar was like pure cat in, uh, cat insurance, catastrophe insurance, where it's like you pay you know, the lowest premium, you have the highest deductible. So basically your insurance only is going to pay out if something really fucking bad happens in your right. life. Um, and I'm trying to think what else. Oh, yeah, we didn't give computers in the early days. We made <laughs> people bring their, mm-hmm. their personal computers mm-hmm. into the office like we thought that was like normal for an early stage business. Um, I, I think that's I'm a good tra- point, though. I was going to say that in Sophia's comment is one thing to keep in mind is this is one of the hallmarks of being a great entrepreneur is worrying about what matters when it matters. And, you know, example, we were starting growth assistant and someone, you know, Adrian was like, well, we need to figure out if it's legal to do what we're doing. And I'm like, well, no, we're not going to spend any money on that. Let's go see if there's a business here. And then if there is in a year, we'll actually have the resources to figure out if it's legal and how to make it legal, which is exactly what we ended up doing. And I think people who join a five person company, they generally are not going to walk in and go, I need a laptop and I need a t-shirt and I need totally. lots of proper health care. And you that's, need, not you know, I mean, that's not why they're joining. That's not why they're joining. I don't, I don't know, man. I don't, in my experience, having started these three things, nobody's expectations are that you you're clean there. Even for me is it like, they get it. Then you just have to be honest. Like, Hey guys, we're, just, we're switching between this and this. Can you just buy your own insurance? I'll give you money. Uh, I'll say, if you're I'll a girl, say not thing. if you're a girl boss, you can't get away with it. If you're the girl boss, good luck. Oh, wow. Drop, dropping that in the last minute. <laughs> Roll that over to the next conversation that we have. Uh, last thing I'll say is biggest lesson or one of the biggest lessons I learned is you can't hire HR early enough or like you can, but I would just say like when we hired HR, it was too late. It's one It's one of those things that you're never going to feel like it's the right time. But if you hire a great HR person early, a lot of these things, like the conversation we're having right now, you don't even have to worry about if you have someone you trust to do this. Uh, Sophia has given me the eye roll. I think HR is where complaints complaints go to die. I think anybody can administer benefits and payroll. I think learning and development is important. And I think all of the benefits that we're talking about – can be run by someone much more junior or by someone on the finance team. Well, if you end up working for uh, Sophia's future company, <laughs> make sure not to apply to HR. Compli- uh, com- cra- complain to your boss. <laughs> Crazy Ones listeners, uh, we'll leave you with one simple question. Do you think that HR is where complaints go to die? Shoot us an email at thecrazyonesatmorningbrew.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And this feels perfect for a future debate. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you next week. Thank you guys so much for watching this episode of The Crazy Ones. If you're an entrepreneur or a builder and want more great startup content, make sure to subscribe on our YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.